Welcome to Writes for Women, a podcast all about celebrating women's voices and supporting women writers. I'm Pamela Cook, women's fiction author, writing teacher, mentor, and podcaster. Before beginning today's chat, I would like to acknowledge and pay my respects to the Dharawal people, the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is being recorded, along with the traditional owners of the land throughout Australia, and pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. And a quick reminder that there could be strong language and adult concepts discussed in this podcast, so please be aware of this if you have children around. Let's relax on the Convo couch and chat to this week's guest. Hi everyone, welcome back to part two of my chat with Rebecca Saunders, Head of Fiction at Hachette Australia. I've had a great feedback on part one of this chat, which has been out for the last week, and I know people have been listening to that and enjoying it. It was great to find out from Rebecca how the acquisitions process works, to find out what her life is like as a publisher, a bit of a day in in the life of a publisher, sneak peek. And just to generally talk about the publishing industry in Australia today, because it was such a long chat, I decided to chop it in two. And today I'm bringing you part two of that chat with Rebecca. Now, anybody who's listened to it will know that at the end of that conversation, I left you hanging a little bit deliberately, a little cliffhanger at the end of the chapter. So uh, the last question that I asked Rebecca was, this idea of getting a manuscript report or even getting professional editing before submitting to a publisher. This is submitting to a trad publisher. I do know a few people who have been doing this recently have been actually paying to have a professional edit for their manuscript prior to submitting to a publisher in order to give themselves the best chance for being picked up. So this is a question I put to Rebecca at the end of our chat last week. And that's where we pick up this interview with Rebecca going into today's chat. So I hope you enjoyed this chat with Rebecca. It's, again, we cover a whole lot of things, not only answer to that particular question, but then things like the actual editorial process, what happens once your manuscript is picked up by the the publishing house, how does the the editorial process work from there, or at least how does it work for Rebecca and, and the team at Hachette? We talk about covers, we talk about author branding, and we also touch on this whole idea of going in a new direction as an author. Maybe you've had a few books out and you want to change direction to go from romance into crime or from historical fiction into contemporary, those sorts of things. We do touch on that as well. And finally, Rebecca has some thoughts on what is selling well in Australia today and which is probably the thing a lot of you are listening for, what she is looking for at the moment. So grab a cuppa, sit back, enjoy my chat with Rebecca Saunders, part two. And if you love the interview or if you love any of the interviews on Rights for Women, I'd really appreciate it if you could take the time to do a little review wherever you're listening, to share the podcast around, let other people know that it exists and hopefully the word can get out about Rights for Women and we can build the Rights for Women community, make it even bigger and stronger. And I really appreciate your support in doing that. So thanks, everyone. Hope you enjoy this chat with Rebecca. Have a great week. In terms of submitting their authors, submitting their work for you to assess or to have a look at, how important do you think it is for people uh, to do things like a manuscript assessment or I've heard of quite a few authors now paying a professional editor to have the book edited before submitting to a publisher. Is that 
something that you're finding is a, a fairly common practice now or what would you say about that? That's interesting because that can cost a fair amount of money. So mm. I think you'd want to be firstly really sure about who, who was doing that editing for you. And there are so many great editors in Australia. But I, and making sure that you had possibly you'd spoken to an agent, you'd spoken to, you had spoken to a publisher and someone had said this is a great concept. So if you need to, yeah, getting over the, that hurdle of the manuscript not being quite ready. But this is, mm. It's an interesting question because we do so much editing anyway for everyone, but I did recently buy a novel. It's a first novel which I'll publish next year. And that had been edited. The agent had sent it to sent it to a freelance editor. How was a nice reputation? So when it came to me, it was like, oh my god, this is okay. Like, so that did yeah. I did hear on the grapevine that about this that this editor had looked at it. I think it might have been in the submission letter. I can't remember, but I did also hear in the grapevine that this freelance editor had, and and this freelance editor had thought, wow. And so immediately because I knew right. that freelance editor, I was like, okay, then if they yeah, I'm going to prioritize this. So. There's a few, you can see how there's a few things of luck and chance in there as well yeah. to hear about it. But I think you'd want to, before out, outlaying that money, but I think if you're like serious about being a writer, that can only help having, if it's the right person editing that for you. And because you're going to learn that, from that process anyway. Learn from that process. And I think that just might get it over the line. Because if you, yeah. as a publisher, if you receive something and it's, you realize it probably doesn't need much editing that's yeah really appealing because that's that's okay we could publish quicker than we and we could be less involved in in it but having said that things still need editing anyway so it's yeah, yeah that's an interesting question I think mm. yeah it's just I, something I have heard more recently that people are doing yeah, that I think a lot of the time an agent would be depending on the agent because some agents can be hands-on with the editorial process and some aren't at all but I think you'd want to yeah have a bit of guidance probably from a professional whether they would suggest that was a great idea because if they wouldn't edit it themselves, they might. So I do know one agent who actually does this with, I think nearly all of her submissions she will get, she, she hires, the agent does though, rather than the author, the agent oh, okay. hires the, the, the editor, the freelance editor, so it's in really good shape before mm. it comes across your desk. And I think if I was a writer and I was submitting that, yeah, I just really want to trust who that was and see that who that, that editor's vision for it and be pretty sure that it would be helpful and that it would help it get across the line. Are there any things that you would say to writers to definitely not do in their manuscripts in terms of the submissions? Oh, okay, not do. If there were a lot of like spelling mistakes, say, for example, like which just seems really in the first chapter or something, that would be really off-putting because I would feel if I have the sense that they haven't read that back, mm then that is, yeah, it's hard to take it completely seriously for me. That stuff matters less when you get down to the editing if you're already, if like sometimes, for example, like very established authors, the character's name could change a couple of times in the book. And oh, yeah. That's, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> and there. that's okay. Yeah. But if, um, when I, like on that submission, if it was happening with something that had been submitted and, and I just saw lots of errors, I would think they haven't looked at it carefully enough and it's probably not ready to be seen yet and why haven't they kind of thing trying to think of anything else that is off-putting not really it's a way of thinking to see like what they're writing is similar to this and this is what it might look like you can't fully expect authors to come with that all ready for you and how to market the book and everything like that if people were using a comparison this is like jk rowling or this is harry like 
Harry Potter, whatever. And that was the only comparison. I would I'd be a bit suspicious of that as well because they're just using their world kind of thing as the comparison. Yeah. Um, and if- Is it important to have those comparison titles, do you think, Rebecca? I'd like for authors to know where their work fits in terms of what's currently being published? Oh, it really impresses me if they do, they, if because I think it shows that they're a reader, if anything. So mm. I'm always like one of the questions that I always like to ask is what are you reading or what do you like to read? And if someone says that they don't read or they don't read fiction, that I guess that's another off-putting thing that comes in. Say it hasn't come via an agent and it's come through somewhere else and I'm having a chat with authors because I think to be a good writer you do have to be a reader and mm. so that is something that I immediately be suspicious about. But I, and I think yeah, an author has a good sense who has a good sense of where they fit in is like the ideal. But even, maybe even agents and even publishers not quite fitting like something might just might not quite fit and it's hard. And you might say, well, this is like this author because of this, or and it's a little bit like this because of this part of the writing or this part of the story. So. I think often agents will use comparisons which are very different to each other and you're like, okay, I don't really know what that's going to be like, but there might just be like a feeling in it. There might be like tonally like someone. I love even the attempt at having comparisons is good because I kind of know what I'm going to get, which is what readers want as well. They want to have, when you're attracted to, if it's a first novelist, you're attracted to how a book looks because it makes you feel a certain way or it might, all these unconscious things, I think. So that. Yeah, I do. So I love comparisons. Yeah. <laughs> and so once it's been through acquisitions, it's been accepted, you then obviously you work on, a, you've got a timeline for when, you know, it's going to be published. How does the editorial process work from there? So the first, yeah, the first thing is finessing that pub date. So you want to look at uh, all the months of the year, see when you have all your other authors and making sure that you're publishing at the right time of the year for this author. So you might think that would be a great for Mother's Day or maybe they need to go a little bit earlier because Mother's Day is, you know, very competitive or it could be Father's Day. The biggest authors were publishing later in the year for people that can, for that Christmas market because that's when all the big bestsellers published from like September, October, and that's really hard. Like the retailers will stock up, they'll select their books and there'll just be like hundreds of copies of not these few authors sort of taking more of a few authors. I think someone's got to be sure that they can hold their own against the competition to publish at that time. There's all different reasons. I don't, there's pub dates. I shouldn't say I've got lots of theories about months that I don't like and I'll avoid stuff like the financial year and things like that. There's always exceptions to that. So I just have, yeah, I have yeah, very like ideas about that from based on experience, the months that I mm. think are good or are too quiet. You might not get enough publicity for stuff. And then, yeah, essentially like contract stuff can take a while. And there's a bit of back and forth and a negotiation, finesse the pub date, and then a schedule is drawn up by the project editor. So it'll be assigned in-house to a project editor or they call it an editor. And you'll have a chat with them about how much editing. You're the only one that has probably read all of the entire right. manuscript at this stage, or maybe a few people have, but they won't be responsible for the editing. And so you'll have a chat to that editor about who is going to edit and how many edits it might need and who we would like if a lot of the time I will do the structure editing for my books some editors do structure some in-house editors do not all but some do and then we rely on a lot of freelancers so we have a database of freelancers and what they like working on and what they excel at and then it's about working out their availability and then we'll have a think about who would be the right copy editor some copy editors might be might be too 
might interfere too much and that might not suit an author, but another author might need that really, you know, that heavy lifting and then even having discussions about the proofreaders. So we'll hopefully try to do this earlier and earlier so we can get the right people to work on the right books. And I would say, yeah, most books need at least two structure edits mm. or it might begin with a developmental edit, which is like a overview, like I might read it and then overview, this is what I think we're going to need to look at and then we might get a structure editor to then really go in so that author will have and I they might even go and do that work based on my developmental edit and then it will come back and um, read it again and then the structure editor will get stuck in I think yeah it's at least a couple of structure edits will be needed yeah. and then copy edit and the proofread so yeah it keeps coming back to the author mm, there's like, a lot I of think, backwards and forwards isn't there yeah, yeah. <laughs> a lot of backwards and forwards a lot of deadlines and I think yeah an author must be by the time that a book get, becomes published they must just be sick of the side of it like just oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> I can't look at this one more time and then often oh. you probably again like if it is a two-book contract you might be having to think about when that book publishes and you're promoting it, you're also trying to write another book often because the ideal model is publishing a book a year in terms of being able to grow your audience because things do sell modestly to begin with and then you might get to, you need to repeat that so authors recognise that author will have a book at that time and that they can grow, whereas if if there's a gap of a few years, it's hard to build that fan base, keep building it because the readers don't really know what to expect Mm. and they don't know when it's coming, so publishing at the same time really helps that trying to be publishing like very similar month and and making sure that cover as well references the first cover so you've created style branding for that author if the first book has worked the first book has sold quite nicely you want people to think oh yeah I enjoyed that book and this like that this looks like oh that's from that author because it takes many books until an author's name becomes familiar to a reader yeah Um, yeah how important do you think that whole thing of author branding is yeah very very Mm. Yeah, I think very. I think extremely. I think you want to, even to the fonts, I think ma- matching fonts, a book that gives you the same feeling, the, the title, the author's name being in the same position. So that, uh, when I say gives you the same feeling, like looking at that book and it, the feeling it gives you, like the cover art and everything feels mm. like similar to what the book that you enjoyed did. So, yeah, I think the first book has done well and, and that branding has been successful. Then definitely I'm yeah, a big believer in yeah, keeping that author's name in the same place and the title so it's, you know, all that recognition. You think that thing, yeah. people need to see things a few times and they're like, oh, okay, because and then, yeah, the things will start off like if it's a really amazing title and a first novelist, the author's name might not be big to begin with. It might be a smaller size and you can see author's names getting oh, bigger. Oh, yeah, bigger. you do notice that. Um, <laughs> as go along, the author names yeah. get bigger compared to the title. Yeah. yeah. And and that's because, yeah, that, that recognition of author names. So if you are, often if you ask people if they've enjoyed a book and they will still struggle to think of the author's name a lot of the time, like some people maybe maybe not less in our circles, but if we're talking to people in the industry, but definitely friends or family, it'll be a few books before they're remembering mm. that author's name and actively seeking or it could be it could be blown away by I know my mum like she gets a lot of books from the library and she recently discovered Catherine Elliott who's a, a British author and just loved that book so much that she went and loaned it, you know what I mean she's read about 10 of her books now okay just from that and so she recognized that name but that's yeah I, that's more unusual it takes a while until people click you yeah. know and remember yeah. and associate that and yeah and, of course, covers come into that whole branding thing too, don't they, Rebecca? How much 
chat is there or, or talk to the author about the sort of cover? Because I know that like just the teacher, when I teach writing and people will say, oh, yeah, this is going to be the cover or whatever, and I often think, no, it's not because that's Sorry. not what's going to happen when it gets to, to a publishing house. So so yeah. what's your take on covers? Okay, yeah, because that kind of consultation process starts with the title, I think, and that which is going to lead to the cover. So often, as I said, like the title will change. And so if I'm saying to an author, I don't think that title is strong enough, then it's up to me to, I'll say, depending on the author, say to them, this is where I think we need to get to. We might like brainstorm together until we, because it can take a, it can take me ages to come up with the right title because I know how important, like title and concept and cover are kind of everything. With this first novel, it's just everything because that's all people have to judge it on. That's all. Mm. You know, the, there might be like social media is really helps people make decisions about books rec- recommendations. But if you're just walking into a store, it's going to be based on what that product it is a product what yeah. it looks like and if it you know commands your attention in those few seconds when you're looking around yeah so with the cover we have a cover briefing form and then I have to go to a meeting and I have to brief that cover to make sure that sales and marketing and publicity are on board with my vision for the cover so on that cover I will have to write yeah like a one sentence selling point then it give details about how I'm positioning that author so when we're publishing who again who the reader is there are questions about what's the one thing you want the cover to evoke what's the one thing you want people to feel like what's the one thing this cover needs to achieve is the biggest question and then on that form you can give you'll tend to give examples covers in the competitor set like okay this if they like Natasha Lester then they might like Kelly Rimmer so you might have you'll have the competitor set there and you will have thought of the tagline, what kind of tagline you want on there if you hope to get a quote. And then, yeah, you've got to convince the sales team that that's the right brief. So they have import then. Before I take stuff to a meeting, I found more and more that I'm sharing the cover briefs with the author because I think don't want, never want the author to be surprised by something. And so one of my first questions, sometimes before acquisition is asking them how they imagined the cover would look like or even after acquisition. Yeah, and then often authors will send me books of covers, the covers of books, sorry, that they like. I think that's really important because then I can have a look and then I can either pick up the phone or email them and say, oh, okay, I see where you're coming from. This one might, you know, or maybe that one is too, looks too old school, maybe yeah, this one is probably more has the feeling just and then tell them and often share that cover brief so they can see what I'm going to be taking to a designer. So don't, because if you see your cover and you get an awful shock, that's not mm. what anyone wants. And you would never publish a book where the author hates the cover. I think right. in the US they have a lot less say about covers, but you sometimes you have to convince that this is the best cover and this is like, that there has to be an element of trust that published books before that have been successful and this is what's happening in the market. And because a lot of people, yeah, a lot of people who kind of see things differently and a lot of um, a lot of authors want to have input into the cover process and a lot of them say, no, we don't, I don't have that mm. visual sense. So I'm very happy to leave it to you guys because you guys know what you're you guys know what you're doing. And then yeah, and then I'll brief the designer, have a chat with the designer. I started working with this amazing designer who reads all the books which I find wow. um, not all designers like have the time to do that I just yeah. love she reads them all and so the concepts she's been sending me she'll get it spot on she might send about 20 but there'll be one in there that's got the potential and can be worked mm. on whereas often it yeah it can take months back and forth and things changing it's one of the most fun things to work on a cover 
but it also can be one of the most stressful when it just doesn't somehow come together and mm. doesn't something's just not right or the sales team don't see it. Yeah, it can take a long time and you've got to have it ready for selling and it is so important. I also like to show, depending, sometimes this changes, I do like to show an author a couple of my favourites or my favourite, my favourites before the cover meeting because if I take something to the cover meeting and everyone's, yes, this one, we love that one, then it's very hard then the author feels like they have to agree with it. So I think right. I want to know that they can see what we're doing. If they personally don't love it, but they're like, yes, okay, I can promote this. I see where you're coming from and then that's okay. But I, so I think, yeah, it's definitely good to have that consultation all along the way because it can lead to, you know, covers can be a really tricky area. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, right? I think as an yeah. author you have a bit of a vision in your head, you know, as you're writing and when yeah. you finish the book of what you think it will be and if it's too much of a shocker, you just have to yes. adjust to it. But it's so important, isn't it, because like you say, the title and the book, you know, when a reader walks into a bookstore or sees something on social media, you really yeah. want, want to grab them with that image. Uh, yeah, it, it's, yeah. yeah it, like title, concept, one-sentence pitch has to do the job. You have to be able to, and people see immediately, I, I love, titles and covers that tell a story particularly titles mm. so I am a fan of quite long titles actually yeah, so, yeah if it tells a story and, and invites you in if something something you might be the most beautiful cover and sometimes I just can't doesn't invite me in and I can't even explain what I mean so I have to mm. keep working on it to make sure it's really clear to what it is because we've read the manuscript and we know what it is and then we might be impressed by a beautiful cover but for a reader who doesn't have they don't know what that book they're just relying on what you're telling them on that front cover and on that back cover. I, I like showing like friends or family that are just completely nothing to do with publishing. I haven't read the book and just say, what do you think when you look at that? Or what do you right. do like that? Yeah, I bother my mum a lot with that because she's a big <laughs> reader and she like so she it's really great getting her opinion. Yeah. Good. It's good you've got someone like that you can bring. In terms of sales, Rebecca, what would be considered today in Australia, for instance, a, a bestseller? Oh, okay. Do you mean like a weekly sale or a total? What would be a total? Because well, you know when be... they say, oh, best-selling author, blah, blah, blah. What For one book title, what would be considered a good number in terms well, of sales? I guess it can be a little bit like to put that label, the best-selling label. It could be that was it was in the top 10 for a week or something like right. that. We don't have a chart in Australia like we do. The individual newspapers have a best-selling chart like the, yeah, you know, they'll have their kind of top 10. I like in the UK and the US has the New York Times and they have that definitive kind of list. And in the UK, they have the Sunday Times. Don't really have that in Australia, but we have everything's based on Nelson Book Scan, so books through the till. And yeah, so something that uh, the best selling tag can be applied to things that might not be recognized as a bestseller right. to most people. So there's no kind of, oh, yeah, if you sell 5,000, then that's a Right, there's no magic number. It might be, yeah, it's probably based on like a, on a weekly thing if they like hit the charts for a certain time or if they, and then that might, might be in Australian fiction rather than the entire chart. I do like to separate out all the editions in Australia in the charts, so like hardbacks against trade paperbacks, nonfiction with fiction and kids and everything. So I like to separate out like for like, like they do in other countries yeah. so can, and then be able to tell people like in trade paperbacks, you have the fourth biggest selling author and I'll, try and give that information like including US and UK authors but also against Australian authors so I think it's nice to know how you're selling against the authors in your country as well We're taking out the smaller formats as well which are like a lot cheaper and giving a like from giving context yeah. to yeah. 
Yeah. yeah. How important is it for that first book, for a debut author, to sell really well, like in terms of their overall career? Okay, if they do, and that's that's the exception rather than the rule, I would right. you know there's so many things have to come into play for that to happen and it does take timing can be really key and everything. Something doesn't have to have doesn't need to have had like thousands and thousands of copy, but I think it that first novel to give you an encouraging base where you can think, okay, we did this. Now, how are the retailers going to feel? Because it'll all come down to for support for the next one. Like, will we get support from Big W again? Will we get support from Target? Oh, they got Target with lots of returns, so we won't get them them next time. Okay, who will we we really believe in this author? So we're going to have to focus on driving stuff through this retailer and like fully looking at how it was packaged. Was it the right package? Was it the right title? Where did, did we go wrong somewhere? Could something have been different? Could have been published at a different time? Looking at all that and making sure you've you know, really done a proper 360 yeah. on that and then addressing all of those things. Because you believe in this author. You wouldn't have acquired this novel and you wouldn't feel ambitious about them. And you're, you know, responsible for the author's career. So take it like very, very seriously. So you want to look at all those factors and you think, oh, okay, we might have to tweak the cover a little bit so it's going to appeal to, you know, like high street yeah. or... And then, if the sales for the second book are then have improved on the first book, you can then go back to some of those retailers that had a lot of returns and say, we, we looked at this and we've got a better cover, we've got a better title, we've, you know, packaged it better, like we really want your support and we're going to invest in, we spend money to for the position the book will be in shelves and in catalogues and things like that. We'd be willing to um, invest our money on it and telling what kind of marketing and publicity cam- campaign we'll have behind it. Yeah, if a book doesn't hit the bestseller charts from the very first off. That isn't the be all and end all, but that if it does, that's simply amazing. But you just want to, yeah, you just want to make sure that in-house as well, you keep everyone's confidence up and you get them even more excited about book two because we're like, we're, you know, enough for the long run. So you've got to like yep. keep and just be really very realistic with yourself and what you've done and what you could have done better and then to be able to relay that to the sales team as well, like your theories about things and they'll have them too so that you're just not repeating the same thing or just giving up or anything like that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And what about in terms of genre, Rebecca, if an author sort of a few books in wants to go in a new direction, how, how do you feel about that? It all depends per author and what they're writing and what their sales have been like. With the kind of publishing I do, because it is commercial and is ch- it is chasing those bestsellers, people like to know what they can get. I think some authors might feel that they're, they're writing the same book every time, just with the same but different. But we all like to know what we're getting. And you do the way that you build that fan base is they know how this author is going to make them feel reading that book and they know, they know they're going to get a page turner or they know. So if someone changes genre it depends how dramatic it is and how so if someone's writing contemporary women's fiction then they change to crime thriller in the uk there was domestic noir and authors there were a lot of women's fiction authors who then started to write in that crime thriller space and had huge success and it just there was a tipping point like girl on the train there was one book before that was the the big was that kind of started this genre and, and it just opened the space for those authors to do that and now they're bestsellers in that area whereas in a couple of years before, the kind of I'm sure the publisher would have been urging them not to mm. change. Readers expect this from you, and so I think if there's some commonality in the new direction, that can help as well. If it's still, say, it was a historical novel and it's going to become a historical thriller, I think that's yeah. seeing how that could like be smooth there. And I think if the new 
direction or the new thing they want to do, if that if it's really good, then it's you know, convincing everyone that it's really good. But it's yeah, it's it's a tricky one because you're almost depending on the author and where the, where they are, you're almost starting again. You've invested all this mm. in building their name and their brand, and if that's changing. Then it's any are, they, are you starting again, or can you take some stuff from that and keep some of the branding, or how can you? Yeah, so there's a lot involved in that actually. I think sometimes it can be a shock to authors because they do want to write different things, but then it can be really hard for us to market, or just more mm. challenging because then will the next book be very different? And I think if there's if there was yeah commonality like it's romance and it's just different romance, then I think yeah that author has the nice sales behind them. Then I think the readers. And then and their name is recognisable, the readers will follow them. Yeah, it's, there's more challenges involved. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> and what would you say is selling well in Australia at the moment? What's popular? TikTok. The TikTok books are taking oh. over the charts. So the authors okay. like Colleen Hoover, we have an author called Sally Thorne who's hating games. Oh, I love Sally's incredibly, books. Incredibly. Oh, yeah. okay, yeah. She's, yeah, I've read um, them all, yeah. Okay, oh, excellent. Yeah. I'll have to tell her. And... Yeah, she's the biggest Australian author, what's called the, the book talk or the TikTok. And that is what, if you go into all the bookstores now, you'll see B formats, like mass market paperbacks, front of store, and it's young girls, they're going and they're buying, which is amazing. It's great because we know that young people don't read as much. Yeah, my as daughter is suddenly this avid reader because yeah. she's all over social media in terms of, you know, and on TikTok and all that. And she's just devouring books. It's fantastic. Isn't that great? Isn't it great? Oh. So all the um, TikTok authors or the charts and the bookstores have their special sections devoted to that. And so it's really encouraging that it has pushed a lot of more traditional authors out a little bit because they're honestly the, the numbers, the sales for these books are really fantastic, actually. They're really great. So yeah, that's what's selling in Australia at the okay. moment. And they commit, so yeah. there's specific genres that you think are selling better because of TikTok? Like Sally's sort of rom-com, isn't she? With lots of romantic comedy is actually, yeah. And yeah. then Colleen Hoover writes across genres and so she has like more kind of can have more thriller packages and I think people are just going to buy anything that she writes really. But, yeah, yeah. so but definitely romantic comedy is doing really well. And Taylor Jenkins as well is another one. Oh, yeah. Yeah, had yeah. like the days that... The Daisy and the Six, Daisy and the Six, Daisy Jones Daisy, and the Six, Daisy Jones, yeah, yeah. And then Daisy Jones. Seven Lives, of, Seven Husbands of Evelyn Seven Hugo, husbands yeah. Of Evelyn Hugo. yeah. So yeah. she that, and obviously she had her success. The um, Daisy Jones was selling the before TikTok, but then it's been picked up by TikTok. So this is safe for the hating game. Like Hachette published that, you know, quite a few years ago. Yeah, yeah. It's come back into the charts. And it's just selling. And every week it's selling more, selling hundreds of copies. And that's, yeah. And, and it's nice that it's in print too, that ebook sales are good, but the print sales has been this revival. So it's nice to hear about your daughter. That's like in oh, like, clear yeah, example. I, I, I'm blown away. I'm constantly asking her now, oh, what are you reading now? What are you reading now? And, and <laughs> a lot of it is, it's definitely stuff she's picking up from BookTok. She's yeah. now working her way through all the Colleen Hoovers and yeah, she's loving it, which is great. Yeah. yeah. It's really encouraging, isn't it? I think well, that's, I like if you go into a bookstore and you like teenage girls playing books and you think, oh, God, we'd like all these things on all these theories we have about that age group not buying books. It just takes like those mm. recommendations from channels that they respect and admire. And, yeah, so that is the big, that's been this last year and this year that's what the charts, the best of the charts yeah. are full of. So them. would you recommend that authors get onto TikTok? Is that something that you see as an important social media thing at the moment? It's really interesting because we're trialling something at the moment and it'll be interesting to see if it's 
you can't manufacture this mm. kind of, I don't think you can manufacture. It's quite a specific thing. platform, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And it might seem quite contrived. And I think what we're doing, we're working, the marketing team are working with a person from TikTok and we've just selected like a sample of authors and asked them if they wanted to be involved or not. And authors that, yeah, there's really quite, because they're like a younger readership and you were thinking of books for the younger market, but then there are authors of cookbooks that are doing, like Michael Mosley is doing really well oh, on yeah. TikTok. But I guess he's oh, got wow. the recipes and the contact. Yeah, he's doing really well. So that was, okay, maybe there are, it's not just all about that young reader and maybe yeah. there's other. So there's going to be a trial and some authors just definitely didn't want to get on there. Like that, and that's fine. I can understand that. Been on and they're just, and then some authors are going to give it a shot. So I'll let you know how it goes okay. because I think, I think everyone's going to have a good time out of her. But yeah, it'd be we'll really see. interesting. There was there's an yeah. author I follow on Instagram called Zoe Lee, and she writes. She's a UK author, crime thrillers, and she's really great at Instagram. I've had her on the podcast about that. But she had a post the other day about since she's been on TikTok, she'd actually charted her book sales since she was doing TikTok posts. Oh, and right. okay. it was okay. really interesting to see the graph. Yeah, the, was... the peaks in sales every time she posted on TikTok. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Okay, I'll look into that. I'll, I'll listen to that podcast actually because I'll be intrigued to see what she did and how. Well, that, yeah, she, how she I that. spoke to her a while ago about um, Instagram, but this was just a post she had recently on TikTok about, oh, okay. about okay. her own sales. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'll let you know because some of the authors that kind of are in this sample that we're going to trial over from crime thriller to okay. historical and no one's in that bracket, that age bracket of what we consider to be like the what TikTok bio, mm. the TikTok bio might be. So it'll be interesting to see that. It seems to me there's some evidence that it's not just that younger readership, but I think there is a bit of, we've had a bit of conversation about looking for TikTok authors, but again, I think you can't, like you can't try of that. You can't, you can't, who, what are the magic ingredients that will yeah. make someone really popular and everything so it just might be things that are selling selling like typical authors are selling one there might be other authors writing similar stuff might be yeah um, like the way in uh, yeah. i definitely because it'll be yeah i'd love to hear about that. i've never been yeah. on tiktok myself <laughs> i'm on there but i'm lurking i think my daughter did a couple of way back when my last book came out she did a couple of posts from just the ones that show the books and okay like yeah that without me yeah. actually my face being on it but yeah we'll see Right, she can show you the way. She can, yeah. You know, she'll know. <laughs> My social media manager would be great. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Rebecca, I'm really, I really appreciate the time you've taken. I've just got a couple more things I wanted to ask you, and I know that listeners would not be happy if I didn't ask you. Are you looking for anything in particular at the moment? Oh, okay. Uh, that's, I'm, yeah. This is a, probably a strange answer, but I would like to find something a little bit left field or something a little bit unusual or across genre or I think in these times when you know the world has been in a weird state of flux for a couple of years and I think I don't know with an election approaching I don't know I think there's just just I just have this feeling about something that's I can't actually describe it other than being maybe across genre something that's a little bit out of the ordinary which doesn't help but probably doesn't fit any set right doesn't fit any genre is something that I could see working well and something that I don't have on the list yeah there's nothing that's interesting there's nothing like I was always after looking for um an Australian crime thriller author I was looking for years and years I wanted to buy Jane Harper was one of 10 publishers and so since then I was looking 
for someone and then I found and just published Wake by Shelley Burr, which just published Okay, this yeah, I've week. seen that. And that was my shows, so yeah. and then yeah, I forgot my crime thriller authors and historical fiction and then contemporary. So there's not this usually I'm writing these board reports about gaps I see in the list and I don't see a really big gap. There's not like a big mm. obvious gap. So I guess I'm pretty open to something just falling in love with something and going for it. Like it's yeah. not wouldn't be ruling anything out at the moment. I know that's very non-specific, isn't it? But that's just have the shape of the list. Like I I tend to publish probably about two debuts a year, I would say. This year, which I just published Shelley Burr and I published Megan Albany. The very last list oh of yeah Megan was on years. the podcast a couple of okay. weeks ago yeah so I thought and they, they also they're my two debuts for the year because I think you could probably be room for perhaps one more but I think any more than that all the energy like everything you want to publish things in a big way I think try and you know have that excitement so have these big campaigns and you can't do that you've already got your like established authors who mm need all of that as well so I think things that are new and whatever I think yeah it's usually I probably have about two a year so next year I have two no one debut next year so far actually and that is the the book that I mentioned that came that was already edited actually but we are ah. still, we're doing more editing but that yeah that's an amazing book which is sent set around a cluster of funerals in Sydney one spring and yeah it's yeah that is a beautiful book and that so for next year that is my only debut at the moment actually okay because this is doing really well and everyone's got their spots I definitely don't want to be competing with authors I already have mm. so there you go so I think then I do definitely do have capacity for a, another first novel next year <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah and just to wrap up Rebecca what do you think is the most important thing for a new writer a, a writer who's got a manuscript or working on on their first manuscript wanting to be published and then also maybe a more experienced author who's mid-career or whatever, what sort of advice would you give to each of those different authors? In terms of getting published? and Yeah, or... I guess in terms of their writing, the writing itself, and then in terms of getting published. I think if, for to start with, for a first novelist, I think the advice would be, I think you've got your biggest shot when you've got that submission, so just making sure that you have read you have you think that book is the best it can be you've done your homework and you've done various drafts of that book and I think having readers you're part of a book group and having people in that book group read the book and give you feedback along the way I think that would be really invaluable because I think you've got this big shot if it's going to get in front of a publisher I think yeah so making sure that it really is in the best shape it can be I think attending some of those pitching events is great and having your pitch really fine-tuned so that's a way if you don't have an agent to get in a publisher's desk because there's often at these events there'll be quite a few there'll be publishers from different different companies and so then you have a shot to to be considered and to be read and then it might be that they want one chapter or three chapters and so making sure they're they're excellent and yeah making sure you I think read and know and know what's selling and, and visiting bookstores I think and what a publisher publishers I think is another is another thing that I'm always like really impressed by I think and for experienced authors advice on their writing or well just in terms of their career or like managing their career maybe I guess probably thinking deciding what you want out of it I guess everyone's goal is to be able to 
make money? Is that goal, is the money side important that you want to not have another job, another couple of jobs to be able to support the writing? Is that goal to get somewhere where you can write full time? And if that is the goal where it's, if the goal is not just publication, but it's having this ongoing career, then it becomes even more important to know your reader and and to really to know your reader yeah. and to know like a little bit and just working with someone and your publisher can do this or your agent if there's a nice connection there and you can just hopefully they're talking to you about your aspirations and if you're approaching it a little bit more like a business if you want it to if you want it that to be the way that you make your money because it is really hard until until you start earning royalties and then hopefully you're published abroad and that brings more income but it can take a long time I think a lot of authors are, yeah, it depends what you're in it for because some authors are more attracted to their writing being recognized and, and prizes and so forth and don't expect to make a living from it so I think working out yeah what you want from it so your expectations are managed and being able to talk to your publisher about it too and your agent and everyone having a yeah, conversation yeah. everyone's like where are we going together where do we want to get to and um, just being really frank about it I think that's mm. and and yeah be willing to to work hard I think everyone you know, have those conversations and talk to people. You're the, going to be the biggest promoter, the biggest champion of your book besides your publisher. Your publisher will be the next, but you've got to, if you want to, you know, put that work in and there'll be, there is a lot of extra work that goes with it besides the writing. And so it's, yeah, being able to manage time. And But I think the first thing would be working, yeah, why you're doing it, what you want mm. from it, I think. Yeah. Yeah, that's great advice. We have chatted for so long. It's been really good. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time. It's been lovely to talk to you. Yeah, really, really great to catch up. So thank you very much and all the best with the, the rest of the year. Now, hopefully we're getting out of the COVID zone and getting to book events. It's been great. I've been to a couple of book events lately. It's just so nice to get out and see people face to face again. No comparison is there. It's just yeah, we've we've had a couple and I had one with Megan Albany, which just happened to be down, like I'm on the Gold Coast, but it was just down the road for me. It was amazing to see her in person. And then we had a crime thriller night in Brisbane with a few authors and it was, and then booksellers and it was, yeah, sort of nothing compares to that. I think it is, yeah, being able to plan tours this year is, is yeah. fantastic. Planning, yeah, we'll see. I think the market is a little bit tough at the moment. I don't think, I think we definitely, if you had authors on the list who had already had a few books out and had a following. They definitely, I found that with my list, benefited from already having their fan base and their sales did mm. really nicely and it was a lot harder for first novelists. And I think now with people out more and everything, there's more competition for time. So I think this will be a tougher year sales-wise, but I'm always a bit too, like, I'm always <laughs> don't count my chickens. So, <laughs> yeah, we'll see how it goes. Fingers crossed. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Well, thanks so much, Rebecca. Okay, thanks, Pam. Thanks a lot. See you later. Thanks for listening to Rights for Women. I hope you've enjoyed my chat with this week's guest. If you did, I'd love it if you could add a quick rating or review wherever you get your podcasts so others can more easily find the episodes. Don't forget to check out the backlist on the Rights for Women website so much great writing advice in the library there and you can also find the transcript of today's chat on the website too you can find details on the website on how to support the podcast through patreon and get exclusive access to the extended audio and video of the monthly craft episode and you can connect with me through the website at rightsforwomen.com on instagram and twitter at w4w podcast the facebook page rights for women 
or find me and my writing at pamelacook.com.au. Thanks for listening. Have a great week. And remember, every word you write, you're one word closer to typing the end. Bye.